welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Exodus 1, 2-10. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives fear God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. 
she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as your people in Exodus, as they were in the wilderness, and, and they cried out to you for food, and you gave them the manna, bread from heaven, Lord, we come to you as those who are wandering in the wilderness, as those who are on our way to the promised land, and as those who need to be fed by you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give bread from heaven in your word, that you would ultimately feed us upon Christ, both in your word and at your table this morning. And Lord, as they cried out for water, Lord, and, and you gave water from a rock, we pray, Lord, that you give the refreshment of your spirit this morning that we would be so filled with your spirit as we leave, that we would be refreshed and renewed and strengthened to follow you, to continue on, to trust you, to enjoy you, to worship you all the days of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series in the Old Testament, and I know I haven't been really clear about what it is, and so you guys are like, what are we doing? Um, but you guys will remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were in 1 Timothy 4, and Paul said in that passage, um, he said, have nothing to do with irreverent myths, rather train yourself in godliness. And I made the point a few weeks ago that if we're going to live in the story that culture tells us, we're going to end up fearing what they fear, which is we're going to fear a lot, and we're going to end up hoping in what they hope in, which means we're not going to hope very much. Our culture has stories that it tells, it has myths that it tells about what to fear and what is worth living for and what we should hope in and what matters most and what makes life worth living. And it's very easy for us, even as disciples of Jesus, to, to believe those stories and to trust in the things they trust in. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go in the Old Testament, we're going to do several books in the Old Testament, one a week, and we're going to look at what that book says about things like suffering and courage and power and meaning and love, and justice. And this week we're in Exodus to see what does is, what is God's story tell about freedom? We love freedom, right? Our culture is very freedom-oriented. We have all kinds of stories we tell about freedom. But for a culture so obsessed with freedom, it turns out that we have a very weak definition of what freedom is, and we don't seem to know where to find it. Um, there's a famous philosopher back in the day, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he said this, he said, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. And what he meant by that is he meant that human beings are born like as a blank slate, totally free to do whatever they want, and then they get enchained over time by the ex expectations of culture or religion, right? And what freedom meant for him was throwing off all those chains, throw off the chains of the expectations of other people and of religion and things like that. Freedom is making sure that no one tells us what to do. Freedom is listening to the inner voice of your heart, no matter what other people say. Freedom is be authentic, live your truth, be true to yourself. Sound familiar? 
Super familiar, right? You guys are like, wait, that's wrong? Yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert, that is wrong. Okay, that might be a fine thing if you're actually the author of your own story, if you're the one writing the story, but you're not. God's the author. We're the characters in his story, and we need to understand who the author is. We need to understand his intention for reality. Otherwise, we're going to have painful collisions with it. Dallas Willard said, reality is the thing you run into when you're wrong, right? And if we don't understand God and the story that he's telling, we're going to have lots of painful collisions with reality. Exodus is a great place to look at what does freedom mean? Where do we get it from? And there's three acts that we're going to do in the book of Exodus. We're going to do the whole thing because you guys have to listen fast, okay? You have to be fast listeners. We're going to look at the whole book of Exodus, and, and it's in three acts. There's the slavery they're in, there's the rescue, and then there's the wilderness. First, the slavery. The book of Exodus starts with God's people living as slaves in Egypt. Now, you guys might not remember how they got there. It's kind of an interesting story. The way they got there was Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, some of those sons got jealous of their younger brother, Joseph. They sold him into slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt. Through many painful years, he ends up rising to power in Egypt. Meanwhile, his family back home enter a famine. They get really hungry. They come to Egypt looking for food. And lo and behold, who's there? Joseph's there, alive and well. And he's in power, and he's able to give them food. So the whole family moves to Egypt. They were just going to kind of wait out the famine. But then 400 years later, they're still there. And over that time, they had grown from 70 people to a great nation. Now, this was to fulfill God's covenant promise to Abraham, right? To make him a great nation. And that's happening over those 400 years. And there were so many Hebrews that you can see in the beginning of uh, Exodus here that the Egyptians both feared and then enslaved them. And so that by the time of Exodus, each new generation is being born into slavery. It's all they ever knew. One generation after another, all they've ever known is slavery. And guys, that actually mirrors our state quite well. Ever since the fall, we are all born enslaved to sin. We're under the oppression of a much worse Pharaoh. Jesus put it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. And so that's the state each one of us was born into. We're born into a state where we're not only born into the guilt of sin, we're also born under the slavery of sin. And it's a state from which no one can free themselves. Uh, Rousseau was wrong. Jesus makes that clear. Rousseau was wrong. Man is not born free. He is everywhere in chains, but that's because he was born enslaved. We've been born enslaved to sin. And, and those chains are not societal expectations and religion. Those chains are our own sin, our own idolatry, our own slavery to it. And only God can rescue us. It's a slavery that only God can rescue us from. And that's what we see in the beginning of Exodus in chapter 2. You saw that Moses is born and Moses looks like the hero they need, right? He's got this epic backstory where his mom takes him, you know, from, uh, hides him from the murderous Pharaoh, puts him in a little basket, puts him in the reeds. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, adopts him, and then they end up raising him up. You'd think, okay, as you're reading this story for the first time, you'd think, this is the guy. He not only has the epic backstory, but he has the power of Egypt when he grows up. This is the guy that's going to save us. But we see a little bit later that Moses' efforts to save his people in his own strength end in epic failure. A little bit later, he sees an Egyptian beating a, a fellow Hebrew. What does he do? He kills that Egyptian. Um, the word gets out. He flees to Midian for 40 years. And so you're like, okay, well, I guess that wasn't our hero, right? 
Moses' early life shows that no mere man can free God's people from slavery. Only God can free us. And then God shows up, right? 40 years later. Moses is 80 years old at this point. For those of you who are older saints, older believers, you've kind of like kicked it into cruise control at about 65, where the culture says, God's not done with you. 80 years old. This is before the 40 years of wandering and all this other stuff he's got to do. So he shows up. Moses is 80 years old. The Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush. Look at Exodus 3.7. You should have your Bible out. It's a lot more fun that way. And I'll just point out text as we go. Exodus 3.7 says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord shows up to these people who have been enslaved for so long, and he says, I see your affliction. I hear your cries. I know your suffering, and I've come down to deliver you. When Moses asks God what his name is, take a look at verse 14. The Lord answers, I am who I am. Say to this people, Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God has come to fulfill those covenant promises he made to Abraham by saving his people out of slavery and bringing them to the promised land. These first three chapters remind us, guys, of a greater rescue, don't they? A rescue that God has done for us in Christ. Like all the Hebrews, we've been born into slavery just like they were, but unlike the Hebrews, our slavery is self-inflicted as well, right? We were born into it, but we're not innocent captives in it. We're actually guilty participants in our own slavery. But like the Hebrews, none of us has the power to free ourselves. You can't free yourself. You can't free yourself with new habits. You can't free yourself with better mental health practices. You can't free yourself with better friends. You can't free yourself with great books. And I love all those things, okay? You can't even free yourself with more religion. Only God himself can rescue us from our slavery to sin. But here's the good news. In Christ, God has seen our affliction. He has heard our cries. He has known our suffering. And he has quite literally come down to deliver us. Amen? Jesus was and is Yahweh. He is the I am in the flesh. Jesus said in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's giving you that covenant name. And how did they respond? They threw rocks at him because they knew exactly what he meant. So that's the slavery part. Now the rescue. So Moses goes back to Egypt to his people to tell them the good news that the Lord's going to set them free. And what's their response? Do you guys remember? They don't believe him. They don't believe him. Look at Exodus 6, 9, the second half of it. They can't believe this good news. It says they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. You relate to that? They were so beat down by years of slavery that the good news seemed too good to be true. And I just want to speak to some of you that might be in that state right now, right? You know, what sin has had its grip on you for so many years, for so many decades, for all your life? Something that's ruled you for as long as you can remember. Something that you just can't imagine the Lord freeing you from. You could be in the same state. that You can't believe the news of freedom in Jesus because of your broken spirit and your harsh slavery. 
I just want to tell you guys this morning, just like Moses came to them and said it's all true, I want to tell you this morning that freedom in Jesus is real. Freedom in Jesus is true. That good news is for you. If you come to Christ for freedom, he will free you. Now, we'll see it a little bit later. It's often a process, but he will free you. And so come to Christ and then allow God's people to walk with you, right? Sometimes that's the missing element is you're not walking with God's people, but if you would walk with us and let us help you until you walk in freedom. But the good news is true. And I love the way that the Lord frees them from Egypt. He does it in three ways. He frees them from Egypt by shaming their gods, which is a fun part, by shedding blood, and by parting a sea. Take a look at this. The first thing that that God does to free them from their slavery in Egypt is Exodus 7 through 11. He shames their gods. That's what he's doing in the 10 plagues. You guys remember the plagues? So he's turning the Nile to blood. There's a plague of frogs, plague of gnats, plague of flies, plague of the death of livestock, plague of boils, plague of hail, plague of locusts, plague of darkness, and then finally the death of the firstborn. What's going on in these plagues in chapters 7 through 11? What's he doing? The Lord is turning their world upside down from every angle, okay? From the air, from the land, from the water. He's turning their whole world upside down. And the Lord is doing another thing that's quite helpful. The Lord is shaming their gods. He's shaming the gods of the Egyptians. The Lord is showing that their gods were too weak to save. Each one of the plagues is actually directed towards one of the gods the Egyptians worshipped. So when all these things go wrong, it's all their gods failing them. Isn't that amazing? So, For example, the Nile. The overflow of the Nile each year was worshipped as the god Hapé. So when something goes wrong with the Nile, it's like, where's Hoppe? Why isn't he here? Why isn't he helping us? I don't know if it's he or she. The frogs, their fertility god, Haket, had the head of a frog. The death of the cattle, Hathor, their uh, mother and sky goddess, it was depicted as a cow. That weird darkness they had, it was darkness you could feel, it says, was an attack on their most prized god, Ra, the god of the sun. Each one of the plagues that the Lord was doing there was to shame the god of the Egyptians, And it's the same God that the Hebrews would be tempted to trust in as well. God was showing them that all these idols you trust in are too weak to save you. Because we all trust in idols. You guys are like, well, we're not like that. We are like that. An idol is anything we trust in other than the Lord to give us meaning and security and peace and hope. You guys got any idols? We've got tons of idols. And what the Lord was doing here is he was showing them that all their idols were too weak to save them. And, you know, this is something God's doing right now in our culture, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed. He's doing something like that right now in our culture. He is right now showing that all the things our culture trusts in for meaning and hope and security, he's turning them all upside down. Have you seen it? Have you noticed? I just want to point out what he's doing because it's pretty magnificent. You know, you look at the culture and you think, like, even for a culture that we're so affluent still is so hopeless, what's going on? God is shaming the gods of our world, right? He's showing us that we can't trust in the idols of our culture, that they're too weak to save us. And it's pretty incredible what he's doing. And I just want to kind of alert you to that because this is a tremendously good time for evangelism. Every time is a good time, okay? Evangelism all the time. But God is, in a way, setting the stage for revival. He's setting a stage for people to come to him right now because everything they've always trusted in is falling apart. 
just like with the Egyptians. And this is something that the Lord probably did in your own life before you came to him, right? He brought you to a place where all the things you used to trust in you realized were too weak, whether it was your own intelligence or your money or your wisdom or your savvy or your street smarts or maybe it was substances or addictions or maybe it was your friends or maybe it was just your own goodness. And you realized, like, I don't have it. My brother has this funny thing he says, just thought of it. He, you know, if he, he does, it makes a mistake or something like that, he'll say, I ran out of talent. And uh, he, he said this about a car. He was like, he had this car accident. I said, what happened? He goes, brother, I just ran out of talent. And that's where the Lord brings us to, right? He brings us to a place where we realize all the things we trusted in have just run out of talent. They can't save us anymore. It's become obvious. And then we know that we need the Lord. Guys, the Lord is shaming the gods. He's shamed our gods. He's brought us to a point where we know nothing else can save us, not even ourselves. So he shames their gods. Next, he sheds blood. Before God brings that final plague, the death of the firstborn, the most devastating of all the plagues, he tells his people to slaughter a lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorposts of their homes. And then he tells them, when, when the angel of death comes to bring this, stay in your house. Do not leave your house. As long as you stay in your house and you, the blood's on the doorpost of your house, he said, I'm just going to pass right over you. Isn't that amazing? So it's called Passover. God's wrath just passed right over. They're hearing all the weeping outside, but they're unaffected by it, right? The Lord um, spared them. The wrath, and, and the reason why this was important is that the Hebrews were sinners just like the Egyptians. They deserved the wrath just as much as they did. But God supplied this blood that they could take shelter in. It was only as they took shelter under the blood of the Lamb that they would be spared from the wrath their sins deserve. That sound familiar? Yeah, the New Testament says that Jesus is the true Passover lamb, that it's in him, covered by his blood, that God just passes right over us in judgment. So there was the shame of the gods, there was the, the blood, and then there was the parting of the sea. At this point, Pharaoh's like, I want you guys gone. They all get to leave, but then he reconsiders, right? After they've been gone a little bit, he thinks to himself, why should I let perfectly good slaves go? So he pursues them, right? This is something, too, that tends to happen when people come to Christ, that I want you to be aware of. Don't be surprised if Satan isn't just thrilled to lose a perfectly good slave like yourself. A lot of times when people come to Christ, their lives get very shaken up. They go through all kinds of trials. This is him pursuing you. <laughs> and yet the Lord delivers. Look at what he does. It's really great. The Hebrews end up at the Red Sea. The sea's on one side. Pharaoh's army's on the other side. God tells Moses to take that staff and put it over the sea. It parts. People are able to walk over on dry ground. Then when the Egyptians try to follow, he closes the water and drowns them. And Paul has an interesting comment about this. And I want to warn you, this part's a little weedsy and nerdy, but it's really cool. And for some people, like, we live for this. So let me just give you something that Paul says about this. You can ponder. If you have questions later, let me know. Okay, just a little warning. Give me one minute of nerdiness, okay? Just bear with me. Okay, this is what Paul says about them passing through the Red Sea. It's really cool. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Paul's saying that this, this passing through the Red Sea is a kind of baptism, right? That they were kind of baptized in the Red Sea, a very dry baptism, but they were baptized into Moses by going through the sea. It's like going under the water and coming out. It's a type of baptism. And uh, Paul, Paul says that that's what they experienced. God's people were freed from slavery to Pharaoh 
through a kind of baptism in the Red Sea. And the cool thing is, we too have been freed from slavery to sin through a kind of baptism. It wasn't baptism in the Red Sea. It was a baptism into Christ's death and resurrection. That by union with him, Paul says, Romans 6, he says that when we were united to Christ, we were baptized into Christ's death and his resurrection. Romans 6 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What he's saying is when you first trust in Christ, you were united to Christ, such that his death and resurrection are yours, so that you've died to your old life in Christ, type of baptism, died to your old life and been raised to new life. Isn't that cool? It's just amazing. Through his cross and resurrection, Jesus has shamed our old gods, he shed blood to cover our sins, and then he's baptized us into a new life. So that's where they're at now, right? So they're, they're past the Red Sea, and then they're in the wilderness, right? God's people don't immediately enter the promised land, right? Instead, the rest of the book is the beginning of them wandering in the wilderness. He says they live as sojourners. They're, they're travelers. They're pilgrims. And what's cool is the New Testament picks up this image um, to talk about us, that we too have been freed from slavery in Christ, right? We too have had the gods that we used to worship shamed, and we have had the blood of Christ to cover our sin, and we've been baptized into Christ into a new life, and now we're at this point where we're in the wilderness, not yet to the promised land. You may have noticed, right? This world is not our home yet. When Jesus returns, he will turn it into the promised land, but for now, it is clearly the wilderness, and you know what's cool is as you look through the rest of Exodus and you see the grace that God gives them in the wilderness. This applies to us as well. The Lord led them. You got pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. The Lord sustained them. You got manna. You got water from a rock. And then the Lord provided them the law and the sacrifices. That's the whole rest of Exodus, right? Let's look at how he led them. So Exodus 13, the Lord led them through the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. This is really cool. They don't just like wander aimlessly. They aren't just handed a map and said, you know, go for it. It's over there somewhere. No, God actually leads them in a pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. God is present with them so they know exactly where to go, where, when, wherever they are in the wilderness. It, what's cool is that Jesus, in referencing the pillar of fire, said this in John 8. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just like they had that pillar of fire to follow, we have Christ who is the true light so that we can know exactly at every point in our wilderness wandering where to go. Follow him, right? Amen. The Lord sustained them. You know, there's a huge problem here. You've got a gigantic nation of people wandering through the wilderness for a sustained period of time. They need food. They need water. And this massive number of people, and as we read in the confession of sin, how they quarreled with Moses. They quarreled about the manna. They quarreled about water. But when they cried out to him for food, God sent manna, Exodus 16, 14. This is what it looked like when they would come out in the morning. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, finest frost on the ground. And it's funny because the, the people of Israel go like, what is it? And Moses is like, it's food, eat it. And it's like a, like a parent with kids, right? You give them food, they're like, what is this? Eat it, you know? So great. But if you look at uh, Exodus 16, 31, it was like coriander seed, white and, 
Its taste was like wafers made with honey. It was tasted like honey. And that's significant, guys, because the promised land that they were told they're going to is a place flowing with milk and honey. So when they're being given the manna every day, what they're really being given a taste of their future. They're getting a taste of the promised land every single day to sustain them in their wandering. Isn't that great? This is even better, which is that Jesus said he's the ultimate manna. John 6, 48 says this. Jesus says this. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus being the true manna, being the true bread that comes from heaven. The one in whom if we believe in him, if we by faith consume him, take him in, that he gives us life forever. And there's another cool connection here, which is that by faith, when we feed on Christ every week as we take the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a kind of manna to us. Not that the bread becomes his physical body, it doesn't, but the Spirit truly feeds us on Christ's spiritual presence as we take it. So as we take it, we don't understand exactly how this works, it's a mystery, mysteries are good, especially in things like this, but the Spirit gives us true communion with Christ as we take the Lord's Supper by faith, that we feed on him in a special way. Like the manna was a taste of the future, the Lord's Supper is a taste of our future communion with him. Isn't that amazing? And then they needed water, right? They needed water. It was another huge need, and they quarreled with him again. I don't even think they were out there that long at this point. This is a lot of quarreling already. This is not a good start. Exodus 17, the Lord told Moses to strike a rock, and tons of water came out, enough to feed you know, tons of people gushed out of this rock. Paul, once again, gives this really interesting insight, 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says that Jesus was the rock in the wilderness that gave them water. And you're like, really, Paul? That's a trippy thing to say, right? But Jesus is the rock in the wilderness that was struck to give them water. Jesus says in John 10, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is the amazing thing, is that Jesus is the true rock that was struck to give us the Holy Spirit, who's true living water. Amen? And it's so fitting, if you want more, it's so fitting at the end of John that when Jesus dies on the cross and the soldiers spear him in the side, out comes two things, blood and water. Jesus is the true rock struck in the wilderness for us to give us living water. So the Lord leads them, he sustains them, and then the next thing he does is he gives them the law. And this is the part where you might be like, this is interesting, this is strange, because it's a book about freedom and it ends with a bunch of laws, but it's really great. So the Lord gave them his law at Mount Sinai. So this is Exodus 20, they come to Mount Sinai, they get the law. But one thing that's really, really great to notice about this, and I think if you have not been listening at all, up until this point. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to church. This is a really important part for you to hear, okay? Notice, guys, that the law wasn't given to save them. God had already saved them, okay? They received the law after they were rescued from Egypt. This is super important, right? They were saved first, then given the law. Moses didn't come to Egypt with the Ten Commandments and say, hey, if you can keep these, 
will save you. That would never have worked, right? He doesn't say, do this and you'll be saved. After they're already saved, after they're already rescued, he says, you're saved, now do this. It's a totally different way of looking at the law, right? And it's the flow of the Ten Commandments. If you look at Exodus 20, verse 2, it says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Notice the flow. I saved you. Now, don't have any other gods instead of me, right? He gives all the laws a flow. There could almost be a therefore there. I've rescued you. Now, here's how you should live in response. Here's how you should obey out of gratitude, right? It's God's grace that fuels our obedience. We don't obey so we'll be accepted. You know, we obey because we've already been accepted. It flows from that. And they wouldn't be able to save themselves anyway. I mean, let's get real. They literally broke God's law before it was delivered to them. Okay, so, you know, Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting God's law. He's coming down. They're already worshiping a golden calf. The law quite literally gets shattered on the ground. Already broke it. It's not a good start. It's not worth running this experiment again. You guys don't. You try. You're like, you know what? I can do this. Give me the law. I'll just do it. I'll keep it. I'll keep it enough to where I can feel like I'm a legit Christian. What is that? Trying to keep the law. Trying to get your assurance from your own obedience. It won't work. You're not any better at it than they were. You broke it before you got it. (laughs) It's too late. (laughs) Right? It's the same with us. The law can't save us because we can't keep it perfectly. It's either keep it perfectly or not at all. It's, it's one of those kind of deals. There's no curve. There's no, like, if you can think of enough other people in your life that are, you know, scumbags compared to you that you can feel better about yourself and then God will accept you. It's not on a curve, okay? Plus that whole, like, other people being scumbags, that's sin too. So that won't work either, okay? But it's the same for us. The law shows us our need for Christ. That's called the first use of the law, that we look at the law, it's a mirror, it shows us our sin, it shows us we need Christ, shows us we're slaves that need to be rescued, We come to Christ, and then the law is for us to obey out of gratitude. Gratitude for God's grace. Reformed theology calls it the third use of the law. That having already seen the law and knowing we can't live it, we're accepted by Christ by faith, we're in him, and then we take the law as a way of showing our love back to God. It shows us how to love him. It defines the relationship. And it says a bunch of times in Exodus, God says things like, you know, here's my law, so that you can be my people and I'll be your God. What is it doing? It's defining the relationship. Now, they had more parts of the law than we have, right? So they had a civil law because they were a nation that he gave. There was a ceremonial law. Those are fulfilled in Christ. And then there was a moral law, which is still binding on us. But that law is for us to know how to love God back, how to respond to his grace with gratitude. It's not a way of earning favor. It's not a way of you feeling better about yourself. Uh, feeling more Christian, more justified, none of that. That's what it's for. (laughs) I know we forget, you know. Put it another way, the law is a way of loving God back. Uh, Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? So it's, it's our loving response, not to earn anything, but out of gratitude and love for God. And guys, that's what freedom looks like, by the way, okay? Because it might seem strange to you, a book about freedom, they're in bondage, they get rescued, and then God gives them a bunch of laws. You might think, like, well, that doesn't look like freedom, right? A bunch of laws. God set his people free so they could follow him, though. That's what freedom looks like. He said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Real freedom, guys, is having the desire to do the right thing and the ability to do it. That's what real freedom looks like. It's having the desire to do the right thing 
and having the ability to do it. Our culture says that freedom is no one telling you what to do. Sounds pretty weak, doesn't it? Compared to God's definition of freedom. No one tells me what to do. That's a great prescription for marriage and all kinds of relationships. (laughs) No one tells me what to do. I'm going to follow my inner child, no matter what it says or what tantrums it brings. Our culture says it's no one tells us what to do. Real freedom, though, is the desire to follow Christ and the ability to do it. And real freedom is a process. That's one thing we learn and throughout all their wilderness wandering. It's really easy for us to look at them and go like, you guys, seriously? Seriously. Over and over again, we're like, these guys are just terrible, right? But then as we look at them more, we go, I recognize these guys. I'm one of these guys, <laughs> right? Real freedom, guys, is a process. It's a process of learning how to live as God's sons and daughters instead of as slaves to sin. And they needed their whole time in the wilderness to stop thinking like slaves, didn't they? You guys remember what happened with the food? You know, they, there's no food. They panic. They're like, why has he brought us out here to kill us? And then they're like, we should just go back home, right? There was all the free food there. There was the bread, and they'd say, we sat around pots of meat, <laughs> right? What days did they sit around pots of meat? I'm not sure. It's like they, it was Golden Corral or something, you know? <laughs> like they're just hanging out, and they're just, you know, at the buffet. But that's thinking like a slave, right? As soon as trouble comes, as soon as difficulty comes, they want to return to their old slavery. They want to return to their idols. We're like that too, right? As soon as difficulty comes, we try to find comfort in things other than God. We try to return to our own slavery, our own idols. And that's why, guys, what's really cool when you look at Exodus, the law isn't really the last thing that God gave them in Exodus. He also gave them the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And this is a very important message he's sending to them. He's like, he's rescued him by grace. He's given him his law to, to live in gratitude. And then he gives him the tabernacle and the sacrifices to say very clearly to them, you will fail. <laughs> right? What else does that mean? You give him the law, they're like, we'll do it. And he's like, yeah, you're going to need sacrifices. You will fail. And when you do, there will always be more grace. Isn't that beautiful? It's so great. They're given the grace of rescue. They're given the law to live in gratitude, and they're given sacrifices to remind them that there'll always be more grace when they fail. So Exodus has this this outline of grace, law, grace. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord says to us, I rescued you by grace. Here's how you can live in response by my commands, and I've got more grace when you fail. Not if, but when. So cool. The book of Exodus ends with them in the wilderness, and that's where we are right now, right? We're in the wilderness. You may have noticed. It's probably why it's so uncomfortable, right? You know, C.S. Lewis said that how you live depends on whether you think this world is a hotel or a prison, you know? If you think it's a hotel, that explains a lot of our dissatisfaction. If you think it's a prison, you're like, yeah, it's going better than I would think, you know? But we live in the wilderness, right? We've been freed from slavery. Our old idols have been put to shame. We need to remember that. Jesus has covered us with his Passover lamb blood. We're united with him, baptizing him into newness of life. We're now in the wilderness headed to the true promised land. We have Christ, the the pillar of light, leading our way. He feeds us as we go on his presence. He refreshes us as we go by the water of his spirit. We're learning to follow his commandments out of gratitude. We're learning how to live as sons and daughters, not slaves. 
knowing that when we fail, there's always more grace. And the message of Exodus is that the Lord's going to make sure we make it all the way to the promised land. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the, the grace that we see in the way that you deal with your people in the past and uh, just emboldens us to come to you and receive your grace now. And, uh, and we have so much more reason for assurance because we've seen the rest of that story. We know your son, Jesus. We trust in him. We're in him. We feed upon him. We rest in him. We follow him. I just pray, Lord, for anyone here that isn't actually in your son, Jesus, now. I pray that you would give them true, saving faith in him. That they would even now, even at this very moment, even during worship, even at communion, that they would say, I want that God. I want that God to be my God. I want that Savior, Jesus, to be my Savior. I want Him to cover my sin. I want to be united to Him in His life, and I want to be with Him where He is. Lord, we pray that You give that gift. And for those of us that are here, Lord, we've been walking with, with You for a while. Maybe we've gotten super tired, super worn out in our wilderness wanderings. I just pray that through this You give fresh life. And even as we take the Lord's Supper, having been fed in your word, we pray that you would feed us true food through the Lord's Supper. And that even in that, as we take that and we receive your son's presence in us, we just pray you'd fill us, you'd strengthen us. Lord, help us to not grumble against you, but to see your great grace in everything you bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.